0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. we will be reading from verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God... ...judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken and is things that have been made that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We will be dismissing kids' kids ages 2 through 5 and grades 4 through 5. You may be seated.
1: Thanks to everyone who's serving in Redemption of Kids uh, this morning. Um, just a few house cleaning items before I pray and begin. Uh, we had a men's meeting yesterday. It was great. It's like, it's like come for the food, stay for the conversation. <laughs> so thanks to to Erica for, for, and Rob. You're present, but we all know. Uh, so thanks, Erica, for the food and um, putting the effort in. Uh, it was a great conversation. So thanks, fellas, who, uh, who came. I'm, I'm saying that so I can also say this. It's a plug for the ladies' event that's coming up, I think, in April. Uh, they're going to be going to Pella, uh, Tulips, and... Um, some other things going on, of course. Uh, but So you can check out the church website for all that information. So uh, please sign up for that. It's a, it is a drive to Pella. So there'd be some carpooling going on, but I anticipate a great event uh, for you ladies. Um, here's what we have left in the book of Hebrews. We have today finishing out chapter 12. And then I, I, I think I'm going to go all the way through chapter 13 next week. I think. Like I say that, and then in my mind, and I get to it, and I'm like, I don't know let's see. And then the idea is that the following week, Pastor Rob would um, open up our sermon series on the book of Genesis. So we'll see how these things go, as you know. Uh, The goal is just to be faithful to God's Word and um, use God's Word to to shepherd our hearts. So uh, you can pray for me as I kind of sort out how we land this plane finally and then uh, get get into a new plane and take off. So uh, let me pray, and then um, we'll begin today's message. Heavenly Father, I'm a deeply flawed man who's in need of your help this morning. It is no small task to open your Word, to read it, and try to explain it and teach it. I feel the weight of that this morning. And so, I pray that in the power of the Spirit, um, you'd allow me to be faithful And I do pray for the folks who are in front of me this morning, Lord, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would use your word um, to speak to their minds, their hearts, and their lives. That uh, these next few minutes would just not be passing moments, but because the Holy Spirit is indeed here in that work, you'd make an impact for their good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to let the cat... As the proverb goes, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag right away here. Today's sermon is about two topics that converge. Um, the first topic is the presence of God, and it's hard to see, perhaps initially, um, when you read the text, like well, what does the presence of God have to do? But it's actually quite there. So that's the first topic. The second topic is the kingdom of God, and that's more obvious when you get the verses. 28 and 29 of Hebrews 12, the kingdom of God, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Like leading up to verse 28 and 29, like you read that part of Hebrews and you're like, ah, what is this all about, right? What is this all about? And then everyone knows verse 28 and 29. we just sang it, right? we just sang our God is a consuming fire. So my my goal this morning is to help you help navigate those verses to help you see how the presence of God converges with the kingdom of God. That's my, my goal this morning. This morning we'll look at this as you can tell, the second half of Hebrews twelve, and we're gonna ask these two questions that are related. What does the phrase the kingdom of God mean? What do you mean when someone when you hear that or you read that in scripture? That's the first question, and the other question related. What does it mean to be in the presence of God? I mean, you can also ask the question, what does it mean to not be in the presence of God? Because that's in our text this morning as well. Answering the first question is going to help us answer the second question. To help you see how the questions are related, here's a metaphor that fails tragically short, but hopefully maybe connects a few dots. Uh, Let's say you work for a large company, and that company is a kingdom run by a CEO. Just kind of run with it. Uh, you were told the day you were hired that you would not see the CEO. His office is on the other side of the building, and you are to never go to the other side of the building. And he's not going to come over to your side either. You're going to make widgets, and he's going to run the company. But then one day, the CEO not only comes to your side of the building, but he sets up the office, his office on your side. All of a sudden, in this little kingdom, this, this business, you are constantly in the presence of the CEO. He's there, you're there. Here's a biblical example. In the book of Nehemiah, we read how the person Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the Persian king. We can assume that there was a day when Nehemiah was not a cupbearer to the king. And then one day, this lowly Jew living in a place that was not his home, he was not in Jerusalem, he found himself in the presence of one of the most powerful people in the entire world at that time. As I said, the kingdom of God and being in the presence of God are connected. And I hope those examples help you see that, right? Yeah, this kingdom, and what does it mean to be in the presence of this king? As we see in Hebrews, the significance of being in the presence of God is way more significant, way more important, way more impactful. Seeing your CEO is one thing. Being in his presence is one thing. But being in the presence of the one who created the world and sustains the world? So let's get our mind around this phrase, the kingdom of God. And then I think Hebrews 12 will make a lot more sense. The idea of God having a kingdom is, is littered all over the pages of Scripture. I, I mean, I could literally pull out—I don't know—I'm guessing maybe a hundred f- passages about the kingdom of God. But here's one: The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. That's Psalm 103, verse 19. And then we read this in Daniel: In the kingdom, and the dominion, and the greatness of their of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, God's kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. God ruling and reigning over the kingdoms of the earth is an, exp- is an expression of his sovereignty. So we all, all these little kingdoms here on earth, and God's kingdom rules over all. When we move into the New Testament, the language to express God's sovereign rule over all things is codified, is solidified in two different ways. You will see the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, in particular in the Gospels, and the kingdom of God. Both phrases say the same thing, that God's heavenly kingdom is supreme over all earthly kingdoms. That has always been the case and that remains to be true to this day. God was sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar and he is sovereign over President Biden and whoever the next president's going to be. Period. Hard stop. Now, what is different under the new covenant is how the kingdom of God is applied. In other words... If the New Testament is telling us about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, what is being implied? What are the consequences? Now, there's some debate among pastors, theologians, Christians, about the nature and the timing of the kingdom of God. But I've boiled the debate down into, I think, three categories. Is the kingdom of God a future reality? So we're not in the kingdom of God right now. But is it a future reality that is ushered in by the second coming of Christ? On that day, some believe, is when God's rule over all things will be realized. It is suggested that we need to look forward to that day because life here on earth is going terrible for God's covenant people. That's, that's a, a view that is held. A second view is that the kingdom of God is here, But it's not fully realized. Uh, A lot of people call this the already not yet view. A guy named George Eldon Ladd wrote a book and kind of framed this view for a lot of people. I imagine many of you instinctively hold this view, whether you know it or not, because it's preached a lot. Uh, The first advent of Jesus Christ ushered in aspects of the kingdom of God, but there's more to look forward to. I'm actually very sympathetic with this view. Scripture is clear about the gospel going forth to the nations in the kingdom of God, while at the same time maintaining that one day God is going to physically renew all things at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Completely sympathetic with this view. And I say that I'm sympathetic with this view, but I offer one critique of both views. My critique is undoubtedly for anyone who holds to the first view and for some Christians who hold to the second view. Those who say the kingdom of God is yet to come and some who hold to this already-not-yet view hold to this dualistic view of the world. Call it theological dualism. There's a clear separation between the spiritual and the physical. So God's doing something in the spiritual over here, and God's doing something in the physical over here. There's this clear distinction between what is heavenly and what is earthly. And all this leads to two tracks or plans worked out by God. That's how that view is held. While I do think theological dualism, a clear separation between the spiritual and the physical, is waning in the Christian church in America. I am not sure there's a full appreciation and application of what it means for a Christian to live within God's kingdom here on earth. And this leads to a third view, one that I would would hold. The kingdom of God is here. As you sit and as I stand and as I preach. It has been established by Christ. God is still at work in his kingdom working through the church, but it is here. My goal is to show you from Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29, as we read, that the coming of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, at his first advent has ushered in something new, hence a new covenant. I mean, isn't that not what the book of Hebrews is all about? The impact of the first coming of Jesus Christ? The impact he has had over his creation, over all the earth? It's seen that time and time and time again. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Right? He is the true tabernacle. He is the greater temple. Over and over. And I think there's no difference here when we think about the kingdom of God. Jesus has given the church the keys to the kingdom, Matthew 16, and now his church is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them, Matthew 28, Hebrews 12, 28 to 29 is like the crescendo of today's passage as it talks about the kingdom of God. Let's read that together. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's no theological dualism in this passage. We have received the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The verb receiving in verse 28, this is getting into the the, the geek world of the Greek language, is a present active participle, which might not mean anything to you, but it does tell us that the receiving of the kingdom is happening, has happened and is happening right now. The first advent of Jesus Christ ushered in a tangible change due to spiritual forces. Like, I'm just kind of thinking kind of off the cuff and off my notes, which is always a little dangerous. But do we think like that? Like, the kingdom is here, right? And then, like, how do we act in light of that? We get so caught up in the day to day, you know? our own little kingdoms, and we forget to realize, no, we exist within God's kingdom here on earth. So, I'm answering the first question, what is the nature and the timing of God's kingdom? I believe, and you may disagree, that the kingdom of God is God's active rule through Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 12.2. Christ rules through his people, the church, The church has been given the message of redemption, which they are to proclaim to the entire earth. The church preaches the gospel. We call that the good news because it is through faith in Christ that a person can be in the presence of God in the new covenant. Now you see how these things converge? Marriage is an excellent example, I I think, of what's going on. When a man and a woman are engaged, ideally, they live apart from one another, right? Dude's at his place, gals at her place. But on the wedding day, the man and the woman make a covenant with one another. I do. You know, those words, I do. After establishing the marriage covenant, they're constantly in each other's presence. If you're a Christian, you are in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I've given away the ending. I've given away verses 28 and 29. But let's see if my claim aligns with the rest of Hebrews 12. How did we get to this point? Well, last week we were encouraged to run the race, right? Run that race that God has appointed for you. The race might be long and hard, but it's good. When the author of Hebrews pivots in verse 19, several subtle shifts take place. First, the author of Hebrews, he does give us his fifth and final warning in the book of Hebrews. I've leaned into the importance of receiving warnings in previous messages, so I won't press that point too much. That is to say, the warnings of God are a mercy and a grace because of the temptation to drift away From God and His gospel, you are exhorted in verse 25. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. That's the warning. Now, I'll come back to the warning and explain the context in a moment. But in light of everything we've already seen in the book of Hebrews, the warning is evident and easy to receive. The Lord is speaking to you, do not ignore Him. Young ones, do not ignore the voice of the Lord. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, Hebrews 3.15. I mean, if we were back, back yesterday at the men's meeting, I'd be like, fellas, do not harden your heart. Same thing applies to the ladies as well. So the first pivot from verse 18 to verse 19 is a final warning. The second way the author of Hebrews pivots is... He goes back to comparing and contrasting what is going on in the Old Covenant to what is going on in the New Covenant. If the author of Hebrews, whoever that was, was preaching to us this morning, it's like he grabbed his Bible, right, and he'd open it up to the Old Testament, then he'd go like this, Now we're going to go back to the New Testament. Then he'd grab his Bible again, he'd, let's go back to the Old Testament, and we're going to go back to the New. He just, just keeps doing that over and over. And he's doing that with a purpose he's comparing and contrasting. The differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are not insignificant, and the implications are massive, especially as it pertains to being in the presence of God. So let's go through a little bit of compare and contrast real quick. The first one is between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Take a look at verse 18. For you have not come what may be touched just allow the imagery as I'm accustomed to saying allow the imagery to work a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given think about how much we're called to endure throughout Hebrews now we read here that some folks cannot endure. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. So we have a mountain that we're talking about here. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I said a moment ago that verses 28 and 29 are the crescendo of this passage because of what they communicate theologically. I can make a similar statement about this passage because of the imagery that is being given to us, right? The imagery that we see through these words. Per usual, the background of these verses is essential. Like what is up with the blazing fire and the darkness and the trumpet? And the background is Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 4. Once again, going back to the Old Testament. Here's just Exodus 19. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The whole mountain? Like sometimes where the words we read are metaphorical. I don't read this as metaphorical. I think the whole mountain trembled. And the sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. I really believe there was thunder in this moment. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Now, in Hebrews 12, the mountain is not explicitly named, but it doesn't need to be named. Everyone listening to this sermon knew that Mount Sinai was being referenced. Now that you know the name of the mountain, you might know what is happening here in Exodus 19. The Lord descended on the mountain, and because God is holy, utterly holy, no one except God's chosen man, Moses, could be within spitting distance of God. In the next chapter of Exodus, chapter 20, that's when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. The author of Hebrews picks up on the scene in Exodus to put you and me in fear and awe of God. Even Moses, the great Moses, the one who personally witnessed the plagues upon Pharaoh in Egypt, it was Moses who held his staff and God parted the Red Sea. Even Moses trembled standing at the edge of Mount Sinai. Like if Moses trembled, how much more do we tremble? If you and I were part of the exodus and we were following Moses and if we witnessed the moment God descended upon Mount Sinai, there would be like a shaking of the soul. You would not go near the mountain. Like I I don't like horror movies. When I was younger, um, you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) And so I was over at someone's house and they they showed a horror movie Um, and I was like totally disturbed for days. Uh, To this, even today, like, you want to watch this horror? No. (laughs) It's Friday the 13th. Don't care. (laughs) I'd rather watch Paint Dry. Thank you very much. But I think the author of Hebrews is leading us up to the line of what could be like a horror movie. Not that God is like Freddy Krueger or anything like that, but because of the might and power of God. From Exodus, from Hebrews 12 and Exodus 19, you are to get a sense that if you approach God at Mount Sinai, like your life is over. Even the beast that went to the mountain, if that touched the mountain, the beast is gonna get stoned. So how much more are you? Not only are you restricted from the presence of God, but there's an emphatic sign at Mount Sinai that says three words: do not enter. Unless you're Moses. <laughs> right? That's it. A person might object and say, this seems like a mean God, right? Is God mean? To which I would say, what we have here is a just God. God is just. God had been good to his covenant people. God kept providing for his covenant people. Yet his covenant people kept stepping on rakes by rebelling and complaining about God like every time God did something for them, step, rake in the face. It's like, come on, guys. What are you doing here? They were living in sin. And because God is holy, it was just of God to place restrictions around Mount Sinai. God placed restrictions to keep them from being in his presence. In a very real sense, God is impersonal under the old covenant. So Mount Sinai serves as one side of the contrast in Hebrews 12. Under the Old Covenant, there were always restrictions about being in the presence of God. You can talk about the tabernacle. You talk about the temple. There restrictions there as well. Now here's the other side of the contrast. So we got all that and we're kind of left like, oh, this is not giving me the warm and fuzzies. That's kind of the point. You need to see the other side of the contrast. Mount Sinai is one side. Under the Old Covenant, there were restrictions. Now here's the other side. Hebrews 12, verse 22 and 24. But you, Christian, take this to heart. But you, you have come to Mount Zion. I just want to stop there. You have come to Mount Zion. And to a city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. The same just God in the Old Testament is the same just God in the New Testament. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Christian, you approach a different mountain and have pitched a tent on that mountain. Think about how different that is than what we read in Exodus 19. And What God has done. Mount Sinai, like you wouldn't want to find me anywhere near Mount Sinai but here you have pitched a tent on Mount Zion further God resides on Mount Zion through Christ God has invited you into his presence you along like with the angels and there's a festival going on with the angels that's where you reside that's kind of cool You, along with the angels, joyfully rest in the presence of the living God. Verse 23 also says the assembly of the firstborn. The Greek word for firstborn shows up several times in the New Testament. It describes one who is an heir of an inheritance, a person who receives an inheritance. Therefore, along with the angels, there are a bunch of heirs to the promise that was given to Abraham. So what does Mount Zion represent here? It represents the presence of God. Which you are a part of. Like now, you see why talking about Mount Sinai is so important, because it helps you hopefully grasp the depths of what's going on in Mount Zion. Instead of God being impersonal, he is deeply personal. As the kids say, he's up in your business, right? Further, you have access to God. The point of Hebrews 12 19 to 24 is not new. We have seen this several times in the book of Hebrews, and perhaps the point is most clearly explained in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, man, this morning, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, draw near to Mount Zion with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hold fast to the confidence of our hope without wavering. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Hold fast to that. For he who promised is faithful. Let well, I me mean, just lock those words and those verses in your brain. God is faithful. So, you can draw a near Christian into the presence of God in the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Like, in one sense, what an amazing time to live in the kingdom of God with such great access to his presence. Be sure you don't read past verse 24. Another compare and contrast is actually made here. The compare and contrast tells us how we have access to the presence of God. The blood of Abel is contrasted with the blood of Christ. Like when I first read um, and kind of started studying this passage, I read right past uh, those verses. And then I went back and I'm like, whoa, there's actually something quite deep being communicated here. Once again, we must pick up our Bible and return to the Old Testament. No one's shocked at this point. This time we're going back to Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, we read that Cain and Abel were brothers, right? If you know the story, this is not new. Each brother brought an offering to God. God had regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's offering. Cain became jealous of Abel and murdered him. First recorded murder in the Bible. Here's what God says to Cain after the murder. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The author of Hebrews picks up this story to say, the blood of Abel cries for justice. I mean, does it not? He was unjustly murdered, and now his blood cries for justice because of what happened to him. But now... Here's the contrast with the blood of Christ. Because Christ is the new covenant mediator, his blood is immensely more significant. Under the new covenant, the blood of Christ has brought about vindication for what has been done to him. Like, Do do you see the difference here? The difference between the two. Abel and Christ were unjustly murdered, but only the blood of Christ forgives and redeems God's covenant people. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 19th century pastor, always has a way with words. If you read anything by Spurgeon, he just knows how to turn a phrase. He says this, Our Lord Jesus did not die for imaginary sins, but his heart's blood was spilt to wash out deep crimson stains, which nothing else can remove. The blood of Abel soaked into the earth and the blood of Christ has soaked deep into your heart making you clean before I move on to verse, verses 25 to 29 what are a few application points for having access to God right? great, want to be in the presence of God yes and amen we meet in the Lord's day, the Lord is here yes and amen how do you practice the presence of God? Well, we approach God through prayer, right? On Thursday, I, just the way my week kind of worked out, on Thursday I spent a lot more time in prayer. I told this to the fellows at our men's meeting yesterday. We had, a, we had a new mayor come to the barn, and I like to say hi to the new mayors, and I just spent time in the stall for like two hours straight just hanging out with the new mayor and praying. <laughs> it's a weird world that I live in, but I was praying, <laughs> I was practicing the presence of God. I, I had a question that I was sorting through. I was seeking God for guidance. Every day, you have the opportunity to practice the presence of the Lord through prayer. Prayer can be formal; it can be informal. You can and should pray the Lord's prayer, and you can pray when needs come up. The point is, is that you're praying to the Lord. That's how you practice the presence. It's super simple, right? But I've, I've found in pastoral ministry, it's like. These things that we need to be doing need to be repeated to us over and over because we so easily forget. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I could pray. <laughs> so go do it. We also approach God through his word. right? You all know this. Through these words. If your conviction is that the Bible is made up of many stories that teach morals and that's all that the Bible is, um, then the Bible is going to mean very little to you. However, If the Bible is the words from God, then reading words from God is how we practice the presence of God. Like, pause. If that is a true conviction, that these are the words from God, of God and from God, then that's how we practice the presence of God. Like, these words, they matter. Again, things we know, but things we need to be reminded of. On Wednesday, my oldest daughter and I were talking about how we can combine prayer in the reading of Scripture. You can go to the book of Psalms and begin to pray a psalm, right? I'm just thinking through a a popular one here, uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And just pray, thank you, thank you God for being my good shepherd. Thank you that I am your sheep. You know, think like that, pray like that. I shall not want, it's the next line of, Next phrase of Psalm 23. Lord, help me to be content with the things you have given me. Help cultivate me a heart of gratitude. So use the Psalms, use God's word to pray. Praying and reading the Bible are not insignificant when you talk about being in the presence of God. When someone approaches to me and says, my relationship with God is not great right now, my follow-up question is almost always, how's your prayer life and how's your time in God's word? Almost always those are my two follow-up questions about being in the presence of God. When you think about it, cultivating your relationship with God is not difficult. It does take work, but I think it's easy, actually. Pray and read. I mean, I know there's more to be said, but if, I think if you start with those two practices, you will know and sense the work of God in your life. You'll know and sense the work of God as you've pitched your, pitched your tent on Mount Zion. So praise God we have access to the presence of God. Now let's cultivate that relationship. I want to briefly touch on verses 25 to 27. It is the heart of the final warning in the book of Hebrews. Technically speaking, there's a literary device being used. It's it's an argument called lesser to greater. But you can kind of think this as another compare and contrast. Here's the gist of these verses. If God rejected people who who refused God under the old covenant, how weightier is the judgment of God of those who reject Christ under the new covenant? That's the gist of the argument. So, do not refuse the one who has spoken and continues to speak. That's verse 25. But look to Christ and rest in his presence. Rest in the presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews ends with a picture of everything on earth being shaken. It is another picture of things that are earthly, Mount Sinai, In the things that are heavenly, Mount Zion, take a look at verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The theologian Thomas Schreiner, um, he wrote a, a commentary on Hebrews. It's the one commentary I've been kind of reading as I've gone through. Um, the sermon series, and he's really helpful. He said this, God shook the earth with his voice as a mighty earthquake caused tumult on Mount Sinai. He's got his cross references there. The Lord has promised, however, a greater shaking in the future. The author quotes here Haggai 2.6, where the Lord promises he will shake both the earth and the heavens. Schreiner rightly points out that the author of Hebrews quotes... The Prophet Haggai. I think the prophet Haggai was prophesying, and originally go to the Old Testament, about the first advent of Jesus Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God. And now the author of Hebrews is using similar language to talk about the second advent, or the second coming of Jesus Christ. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God shook the earth. We read that in the Gospels. The curtain was torn in two, this curtain that was not supposed to ever be torn because it was so thick and so strong, was torn to two. God shook the earth then, and he will do it again in the future. Uh, growing up, I played in a lot of sandboxes, you know, and like almost every sandbox I had ever been in had a sifter. Like, I didn't even know what you'd do with a sifter. It's like, the obvious always happens. The, the sand goes through the sifter. Somehow that's amusing. But there's some things that don't go through the sifter. Larger objects, for example. God is going to do something similar, but on a cosmic level. God's kingdom has been established on earth, and there will be a day when everything that is not part of God's kingdom will be shaken to the core. Anything not a part of God's kingdom will be done away with. Therefore, Do not refuse the one who is speaking. That shaking's coming. Do not refuse the one who is speaking, but receive Christ and receive his kingdom. If you take Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29 to heart, you're left with some choices. Are you standing at a distance from Mount Sinai or... Have you pitched a tent on Mount Zion? Do you rely on blood that cannot save? Blood of Abel? Or do do you look to the saving blood of Christ? Do you exist in a kingdom that can be shaken? Constantly striving for the things of this world? You You pitch a tent in your own little kingdom? That kingdom going to get sh- shook. <laughs> or do you joyfully exist in a kingdom that cannot be shaken? All the warnings from the book of Hebrews are meant to prod you toward Christ. They are meant to encourage you to boldly approach the throne of grace and the presence of God. I'm going to end By restating something I said at the beginning of this message, it is in part a summary of what we've seen since Hebrews 7, where a clear shift took place between Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 7 in terms of the argumentation of the author of Hebrews. It's this phrase. The kingdom of God, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, is God's act of rule through Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 12.2. Christ rules through his people. The church, I said this a week or two ago, we're vice regents. The church has been given the message of redemption, which we are to preach to the entire earth. The church preaches the gospel, the good news, because it is through faith in Jesus Christ that a person can be in the presence of God in the new covenant. So that leaves us with a task. Right? We go and make disciples of all nations. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We invite people into our space. Like our, our, our church, I think of it like this our church is um, like we're at a big table. And uh, if you're a member of Redemption Church, you got a seat at that table. But there's some empty chairs there. And we want to invite people to sit with us and feast on Christ. To be in the presence of God. To know the saving message of the gospel. We want broken people to come and be restored by God. Let's be that. Let's continue to be that kind of church. Amen. Let's pray.